The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. So, uh, Daniel chapter 9, there is a massive diversity to the material uh, to be worked through in a passage like this, as you heard it read. So it goes from somewhat normal, Daniel reading the Bible, and then Daniel praying, and then you get into some really challenging sorts of images uh, at the end. So I just want to dive right in and I want to give a roadmap right at the beginning. So on one level, it's a very simple passage. Uh, Daniel reads the Bible and he responds to God in prayer based on what he read. Uh, He's reading Jeremiah, it says, and he discerns the end of the Israelites' exile. And as such, he turns to the Lord in prayer. So I want to talk about the shape of that prayer, and I also want to view it as a sort of window into Daniel's uh, spiritual habits, his uh, spiritual discipline. So stay tuned for that. And on another level, Daniel's prayer is answered in some interesting and somewhat cryptic ways. And the answer God gives to Daniel actually goes beyond the scope of Daniel's prayer itself. And that's the passage in a nutshell. Um, And we'll need to think through this a bit, obviously. I actually want to start at the end of the passage uh, with the answer to Daniel's prayer. And there are things that are mentioned just very briefly that I think have huge implications for how we view God. Um, And I'll get to that in a minute. So once we've explored the end of the passage, the answer to to Daniel's prayer. Then we'll circle back, we'll go all the way back to the beginning of the passage, and I want to spend some time talking about uh, spiritual disciplines. So uh, we're going to dive right in with the tricky bits. Uh, Verse 24 uh, begins with the word and the vision that Daniel is to consider and understand is what what the text said. So we've already read it, so I'm not going to read all of it again. Um, I just want to highlight some key things. I don't know if we can see the slide there. Um, All right, great. So verse 24 says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. And then in verse uh, 25, it says, the word to restore and build Jerusalem uh, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again. So If you go back to the beginning of Daniel's prayer, Daniel reads the book of Jeremiah and he perceives that the end of their exile is here. And verse 2 mentions 70 years. So here we have another mention of 70. And I actually put in my notes here, I have three minutes to talk about this. So um, I'm not going to spend a ton of time. But there are 70 weeks. Now the first thing... And I should just say at the beginning, all of this sort of like apocalyptic eschatology, everybody's vocabulary for it is different. So I'm trying to be as succinct as I can in this. Just talk about some, some I think, fairly straightforward things. And hopefully it makes some sense uh, of, of what's being revealed here. And because we're dealing with it in such short shrift, I'm happy to talk about this further. I think that the apocalyptic type images are complex, but I'm also really grateful that God reveals things in ways that aren't just propositional statements. Like there's these 
there's these beasts and dragons and the, like there's things that sort of snap you out of a normal uh, funk and they reveal things in ways that are just fantastic. They snap you out of your current reality and it shows that that God cares about the whole person, like it engages a different part of our brain. So anyway, um, I'm already probably over my three minutes on this. So 70 weeks. Uh, in verse 24 uh, and following, he refers to the 70 weeks. Now first, the word that's translated as weeks is not actually a seven-day period. Um, it could be seven days. It could be seven years. It's literally just a span of time. So when it says 70 weeks, literally it's saying 70 sevens. Um, in the NIV, it's translated, they couldn't make up their mind, so that's what they call it. It's the 70 sevens. So if you do that multiplication, it's 490 years. Basic, sorry, did I do that? Basically, everybody agrees on that 77, it's 490 years. And I think in this case, it makes sense to read it that way. So Gabriel uh, is saying that 70 periods of seven years are decreed, quote, about your people and your holy city, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Now something interesting happens. So for those of you that know me, I teach middle school math. I have sort of a math-minded brain, at least. So in verse 25, the 70 weeks that were referred to uh, in verse 24 are split. So there's a period of seven weeks, and then there's a period of 62 weeks. Now, for those of you that are fluent in addition, what do you notice? It's not 70. There is a missing week. So the, the 7 and the 62 add up to 69. It's, it's not 70 weeks. What happened there? So interesting. Um, so I should say, up to this point, basically everybody agrees it's 490 years and there's a missing seven. Now, what we do with that missing seven, there's two main views. One is that the missing seven hasn't happened yet, like even now. Uh, so it would be fulfilled in the future during the seven-year tribulation after the church is raptured. It's all that left-behind stuff that you've possibly read. It's referred to as dispensationalism. Uh, dispensationalism, it's much more diverse than just this one view, um, and the scope goes beyond just this section of Scripture, but that's how they view it, that there's a, a, a seven-year period of time somewhere off in the future, the missing seven just flew off, and then in the future, there will be a seven-year period of tribulation, three and a half years, split in half, and that's how they, how they view this uh, passage. There are, uh, in my opinion, substantial difficulties sustaining this view, but it's one of the major views nonetheless. The other view for what the missing seven could be, and the view that I take, um, and I haven't talked with others, so I'm not sure what, what King's Cross exact view is, though probably I should know that. Um, it's fulfilled in the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is m the mainstream uh, conservative view. Now, this makes sense of the math. Like, if you add up the seven sevens, 
that kind of puts you at the restoration of Jerusalem. And then 62 more sevens, it kind of drops you off right at the doorstep of Jesus' ministry. So the math, the math certainly adds up, and the imagery is kind of interesting. It's a little bit more abstract in its fulfillment, but if we follow a Savior who says that, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days, if, if we can allow that Jesus is using some, some really abstract images there, I think we can allow for this interpretation. So, anyway, whatever we believe about the particulars, the vision looks ahead to a time of restoration where God is going to deal fully and finally with sin to bring about everlasting righteousness. And the 70 weeks that we're talking about here correspond to the 70 years that Daniel was praying about at the beginning of the chapter. Those are the years that Daniel's considering when he prays. Now, there's a couple things I want us to consider before we jump back to the beginning of the passage and look at Daniel's prayer. And I think that there are two significant takeaways from this portion of the chapter, which is going to transition us uh, back to the beginning. First, and it may seem, how in the world could you draw this implication? First, I want to talk about the generosity of God. And I think that you can see verses 20, 21, and 23 on the slide. I actually didn't print those on my sheet, so I'm going to just cheat a little bit here. It says that while I was speaking and praying, verse 21 says, while I was speaking in prayer. So God's answer comes while Daniel is speaking. And then verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. This happened at the beginning of Daniel's prayer. Now, what I find interesting, and the image that came to mind for me is the father of the prodigal son. If you're familiar with that story, um, prodigal son runs off, squanders his, uh, his inheritance, and he figures, well, I'm better off back at home than I am here, so I might as well just go back home. And he has this beautifully rehearsed speech, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. And he's got the whole walk home to be able to rehearse that speech in order to deliver it to his father, whom he has uh, sinned against. And when he actually gets home, he doesn't even get to deliver his speech. ACDC? We should do Name That Tune. I think it was ACDC. Okay, all right, I got, I got a couple amens. A couple amens from the congregation, sorry. Uh, I was, I was semi-undistracted up to that point. The point being, in the case of the prodigal son, the father just runs. He doesn't wait for the rehearsed speech. He doesn't have to articulate things perfectly. The father just runs to him in love and compassion, and he's delighted to see his son. And I think that that's similar to what is going on here. It's a very long prayer, and obviously it's in the Bible, so it's theologically accurate, right? The prayer itself is just breathtaking in its scope. And it's not like God is standing there waiting for Daniel to express things perfectly before he will answer, as though God's waiting to make sure that Daniel says all the right thing, and then he will release his, his answer. That doesn't happen at all. What these verses say is, 
as soon as Daniel started praying, the answer was on its way. Like Daniel was oriented to God, and God, like the father of the prodigal, just runs to him in his answer. And I think having in mind that we pray to a God who runs to us gives us boldness in the ways that we pray. And I think that for Daniel, uh, the way that he's, he faces God in this way, it just shows a view of God that I think is compelling, that this is a God who runs toward us. And it takes a level of anxiety off of the table. So when people, it's been my experience that for people to pray publicly is a very anxiety-ridden thing. And I can understand that. Um, but prayer is something that probably has a lot of anxiety in terms of how we view God, right? That we think that, well, I've got to make sure I check off all the right these and nows. I've got to make sure that I, I use big theological words like dispensationalism, even though I'm not even sure what that is, but I'm going to have to say it so that I can impress God with my vocabulary. And then if I'm deemed to be worthy enough, then God will answer. That's not what this passage says at all. Uh, we pray to a God who runs to us. And what that means is I think that we can be very bold in the way that we pray. So we'll talk about this a little bit as we go on. So the first uh, significant takeaway, I think, from this portion of the chapter uh, is the generosity of God. And I realize we're giving that kind of short treatment. I'm happy to have you go back and look at the passage and then talk about that further. And even I'm happy to even explain like how I teased those implications out. So that's the first one is God's generosity. The second is the restoration goes beyond what Daniel imagined. So once we're back at the beginning of the chapter, we're going to see that Daniel is reading Jeremiah. He reads that the exile is supposed to be 70 years uh, long, and he prays according to that framework. And what Gabriel reveals, what God's answer is, is that there's a whole different 70 to consider, right? The 70 years of exile is important, uh, and Daniel's right to pray about those things. But the answer um, goes far beyond that. So Daniel's looking at the restoration of Jerusalem, and rightly so. We've talked about this throughout. They are foreigners in a foreign land. They are in Babylon. They're in, <laughs> later to be called Persia, uh, that human empires go back and forth. Um, so he's right to be looking to the restoration, but the scope of the restoration is just so much bigger than what even Daniel has in mind, even bigger than what he can imagine. And I want us to think about this because I want this to frame how we think about Daniel's prayer. We not only address a lavish and generous God who's faithful in his character, but his answer to our prayer is often far more grand than we can imagine. So I want to make sure that makes sense. Daniel's looking to the sort of semi-immediate restoration of Jerusalem. And the answer to that prayer is, there is a restoration that is so much grander that's coming. And he's actually like setting us on the doorstep of Jesus' ministry. So Daniel's looking temporarily, and God's answer is just much more vast. So I got a couple head nods, so I, I think that, that that makes sense. So with all that firmly in view, 
I'd like to circle back to the beginning of the passage now. And the reason I did that just from a preaching strategy standpoint is, one, the last word of the chapter is like desolator. Um, like it, it ends in sort of a, <laughs> the, the plane sort of lands on rocky ground in the chapter. So I'm thinking like, well, you can't really, can't really close with desolator because that's, that's not an encouraging word. But as we circle back now and talk about spiritual disciplines to talk about Daniel's prayer, I want those things to be in our minds, that God is generous, he's lavish, he's, he's faithful, and his answers to our prayers are just far grander than we experience. I want that to frame how we, how we pray. And as we talk about spiritual disciplines, spiritual habits, whatever you might want to call them, I don't want us to be bound up in the anxiety of this sort of exacting taskmaster of a God who is unapproachable, right? I, so I, I, want, I want these things to... Boy, that's tough. I'm like one of the more easily distractible people on the planet, and noises like that. It's, uh, now I'm wondering, like, what happened? All right, so anyway, let's circle back to the beginning of the passage. So we're going to look at the first 19 verses now in a little bit more detail. And the main point of what I want to talk about today is that pilgrim prayers confess the past and they anticipate the future. And we're going to kind of jump around the passage a little bit because it's a prayer, right? It's not a systematic theology. So it's not organized in exactly the same way that you, you might organize a, a normal chapter. So... Um, what I've done here is just kind of broken up the verses around some common themes. One, the first three verses are, are obvious. Uh, pilgrim prayer responds to God's word. Second, pilgrim prayer trusts God's character. Third, it accepts God's discipline. And last, it anticipates God's future. So the verses are a little bit scattered. And actually, when we send out the manuscript... I have printed Daniel um, 9 on the last page, and these are like color-coded, so you can just see. Like, that's kind of how my brain works. So in the case where it trusts God's character, I just highlighted those in a particular color, if that's any, any value to it at all. But I sort of arranged them around those sort of central ideas. So I want to talk quickly about uh, spiritual habits. If I had to pick one topic, honestly, that I'm most passionate about, it would be spiritual health. And some of you have already been victim of those conversations. And a critical part of anyone's overall health, spiritual health included, would be their habits or their disciplines. As we've walked through uh, COVID-19 in a global pandemic, uh, the importance of habits has been greatly reinforced. Uh, we were just counting up this morning um, I think it's seven, is it like seven and a half months since the, uh, the initial stay-at-home order? Like that's, a, that's a long time, um, and I don't know if my math is even correct. We're in November now. It's, but anyway, the point being that, that the need for healthy habits has been constantly reinforced uh, throughout, throughout this time. And spiritual habits, to be more specific, are those that directly connect us to Jesus. And I'm grateful for passages like this one that give us a brief window into Daniel's spiritual habits. 
because frankly, I think that Daniel's faith is compelling. As a reader of the Bible, as I've read the book of Daniel over the years, I find his faith compelling. And as I think about the Bible on the whole, Daniel's a positive example of somebody who followed God faithfully. One of the uh, few examples. And I don't know about you, but whenever I encounter somebody like this, uh, whether on, on the page or, or in real life, I want to know how they did it. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not as interested in the what as I am in the how, because I believe in human potential. I believe that we have the same access to the same God that Daniel did. So I'm always curious as to how they did this. And we see something like this in other places in the Bible. Like you look, you can actually get some, some pretty good insight into Jesus' spiritual habits in the Gospels. Um, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. And that's where the Lord's prayer comes from, right? He, they say, we want to know how to pray. And Jesus in Matthew says, when you pray, say this. Or in Luke, he says, pray like this, or this is how you should pray. But either way, they want to know, like, Lord, how should we do this? And that's sort of my framework. Like, I want to know how, how do you do that? So I look at somebody like Daniel, who's living a life of faithfulness, and I, I want to know how. Um, so we get occasional views of the types of things that Daniel did in order to make that a reality. And we've talked about that throughout the whole book. So personally, I believe that these acts of faithfulness on Daniel's part are actually the overflow of his habits. So the text never portrays him wrestling with whether or not he should pray to the emperor. Like, he doesn't have this this internal struggle. At the beginning of the book itself, he doesn't struggle with whether or not he should eat the king's food. He just doesn't. And I don't think it's radical to infer that Daniel's habits shaped his identity in God and were a critical component of his faithfulness. They weren't simply individual things that Daniel did. They were things that connected him to God in vital and living ways. And Daniel is a pilgrim in Babylon. As he sojourns far from home, these habits are how he maintains a vision of home and a vision of God and a vision of faithful living before God. So without further ado, let's, let's meditate on how Daniel prays. And hopefully, in so doing, we can find some encouragement for our own pilgrim prayer life. So first, we notice that pilgrim prayer responds to God's word. That's the first three verses. There's nothing earth-shattering here. It's fairly obvious in the first three verses, minus some confusing ruler names. Um, only that it, what, what's interesting is that Daniel is attentive to God's word, and the entire prayer comes out of his response to reading God's word. Lots could be said about this, but I think um, it just says a lot about a process of reading scripture, right? It doesn't seem mechanical what Daniel does. Uh, he turns to the Lord in prayer immediately, perceiving that the end of their exile is soon. Um, it makes me think of actually the process of scripture reading referred to as Lectio Divina, uh, which is just fancy Latin terminology for attentive reading of the Bible in a spiritual sense. Um, it's just a way of reading scripture that engages 
all of who we are. So we not only read the text, but there are specific exercises designed around meditating on the text and contemplating the text and praying the text and finally incarnating the text. Like there's, these are all parts of the process. And it appears as though Daniel actually does a bit of this type of reading. Now the Bible's not going to use that terminology, but this is kind of what Daniel does. It's not enough just to read and understand the Bible. So Daniel doesn't read it and say, oh, exile's almost over. And then he goes to his small group and he says, hey, everybody, I was reading Jeremiah. Like, that's all informational and it's important. But Daniel perceives that the end of exile's coming. And what does he do? In vital and living ways, he turns to the Lord in prayer. It shows that he's, he doesn't have a concept of God as an idea. He's actually attached to God as a person. He prays to God. So it's not enough just to read and understand, but he's compelled to talk with God about it. So pilgrim prayer responds to God's word. Second, pilgrim prayer trusts God's character. I don't think that I'm overstating the case that our life is entirely predicated on the faithfulness of God's character. Um, This is a major theme in the Bible. God alone is absolutely trustworthy and keeps his promise. It's essential to who he is. He cannot not keep his promises. And I want to say that again. God cannot not keep his promises. It's it's an essential part of who he is. And because it's an essential characteristic of God, it's also a critical part of Israel's collective life. Like, this is the sea that they swim in, the trustworthiness of God's character. You can literally read about it all over the New Testament. I try not to use that phrase too much, like it's all over the Bible, which is usually some, like when you press somebody on that, when you say, oh, could you show me nine examples? Oh, it's all over the place. Like, okay, just give me 14 or 15. Um, This is one where, like, I don't think you can turn the page without seeing some appeal to the faithfulness and trustworthiness of God's character. And even if you look in your Bibles, you're going to see some cross-references there in this prayer, which are going to bring you to places like Exodus and Jeremiah, because this language gets used so frequently. Um, So just in this chapter alone, you're going to find a bunch of cross-references. And I just pulled a couple verses, which I think you can see up on the screen. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt, right? You're referring back to this massive act of faithfulness on God's part. Like, this is how they pray with a mighty hand and have made a name for himself. So pilgrim prayer trusts the faithfulness of God's character. So when Daniel prays, he appeals to this because it's foundational, right? And when we're praying, I think it compels us to remember God's generosity. As we pray, we lean into the faithfulness of God's character, that it's not about us. And actually, I think, (laughs) yeah, we'll, we'll get to this in a second, So it says, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. To you belong mercy and forgiveness. So it's all the positive attributes of God. And then the very next thing is that pilgrim prayer accepts God's discipline. So it'll say, to you, O Lord, belong righteousness. To you belong mercy and forgiveness. And verse 8 says, 
to us, O oh Lord, belongs open shame. So you see, you see the difference. You're trusting in God's character on one turn, but you're also accepting of God's discipline. Now, Daniel doesn't need any reminder of his sin or the sin of Israel. He wakes up every morning in a foreign country. So when you wake up and you're not home, you, you have a pretty clear, how did I get here? Oh, that's right. We got kicked out of Jerusalem and I'm waking up in this place for 70 years. Um, they're in Babylon because of God's judgment on them. And as we've seen throughout the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel lives with a consistent awareness that he belongs to God, that he's a pilgrim in this foreign land. So his prayer reveals that he accepts God's discipline. And, I mean, it's not as though he had a choice, but still, it, it creates what I call the illusion of choice. Um, but he confesses that sin. Verse 5, he says, we have sinned. Verse 6, we have not listened to your servant, the prophets. Verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our sin and gaining insight by your truth. Verse 14, we have not obeyed his voice. Right, so pilgrim prayer accepts God's discipline and it's worth noting, I think, as we reflect on these verses, that Daniel's not morbidly introspective, right? Daniel's not going on and out on about what a loser he is personally, right? Does that make sense? So when I say morbidly introspective, it's a person who they're just dragging their head along the sand like, oh, well, it's like the Eeyore complex, I guess, in, in a spiritual sense. Um, he's realistic about the corruption, and he's realistic about where that corruption brought them. So I think we can acknowledge our sin in a way that's not self-defeating and hopeless, right? So Daniel isn't just focused on his individual sin. He's focused on Israel's sin collectively and where it brought him and all of Israel. And he obviously is implying his own guilt, and he accepts God's discipline as just and fair. But he doesn't need to get drawn into this cycle of despair. And I, I don't know who that, that might be a word for, but, but as Daniel prays, he, he's not just talking about what a loser he is spiritually. Um, so I think as we pray, we don't want to get drawn into that cycle of despair. So pilgrim prayer accepts God's discipline. That's what Daniel's doing. To us belongs open shame. We deserve this. And we're accepting our, our punishment from the Lord. <clears throat> Finally, pilgrim prayer anticipates God's future. We've talked before, but um, one of the things that I find remarkable is Daniel's hopefulness about going home. Uh, so, verse 17, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Even these are built on the faithfulness of God's character. 
And pilgrim prayer anticipates this future. So Daniel's life is lived out of the hope that God is never finished with his people. Even as Daniel experiences success at the highest level of these foreign governments, he never loses sight of home, of God's glorious future for his people, and of their return home. So prayer for us in the same way is hopeful. As we live out our sojourn here in our own Babylon, we have to realize that God's story is never over, that our prayer should be anticipating God's future. Now, I want to close with this. That was like the key word for the musicians for, to warm up their finger. Just because if you're at home, you're probably under a blanket, and even some of you in here are under blankets. I feel for the musicians who have to have like manual dexterity when it's this cold. Like if my hands cramp up and I fall over, it doesn't necessarily negatively affect me, but for the musicians, like they, they have to be able to use their, their fingers, right? You, this is my air guitar playing, by the way, for those. So anyway, uh, I want to close with this. We are all, uh, <laughs> no doubt, uh, aware of the intense political climate that comes to a head on Tuesday. Um, yes, it is November. I wasn't even aware of it until two weeks ago when uh, David Pickney made reference to the election. I'm like, oh, right, that's coming. Um, this all comes to a head on Tuesday. One candidate wins and another loses. Lots of candidates win, lots of candidates lose. And that evokes strong reactions on the part of most people. Um, what I find compelling about Daniel's pilgrimage in general, uh, and his prayer in particular, is that Daniel is singularly focused on God's activity in their exile. He doesn't read Jeremiah and run off to explain to the emperor that he has to let the Israelites go. He doesn't launch a social media campaign saying, like, time to go home. What does he do? He immediately turns to the Lord in prayer. And of course, social media for Daniel would have been like maybe MySpace or something like that. Anyone remember MySpace? Yes. Awesome. Um, so that's a distraction. Sorry. Uh, Daniel turns to God. And in that is the acknowledgement that if the Israelites are going to be restored at all, it's going to have to be God that does it. They will have to fall on God's grace and on the faithfulness of his character. He and they will have to remind themselves of the sin that brought about their exile in the first place. They will have to plead with God to remember his promises, much like the Israelites did under Egyptian slavery. Whatever happens Tuesday, our pilgrim life will go on. Neither candidate no candidate will usher in the new Jerusalem, regardless of what we might think. So as we sojourn through the weeks and the months ahead, let's remember that the same faithful, kind, and generous God that Daniel prayed to is the same one that we pray to. And as Daniel lived a life of steadfast faith in the midst of Babylon, so we can orient ourselves to God in simple faith and trust as we live out our own pilgrimage in Babylon.
And let us keep these tiny political wins and losses in their proper perspective as we look to Jesus, mindful of the ways that we can love God, the ways that we can show our love for God, and the ways that we can show our love for others. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word, and we're thankful for uh, translations that we can read. Uh, and we're grateful for this window into, um, into Daniel's prayer life. Uh, we're grateful for uh, the model of prayer. And God, as we live out our own sojourn here, I pray that you would tune our hearts to you in the same way that Daniel was that we can fall on the steadfast love, the faithfulness of your character, that we can confess our sin individually and collectively, but that we can boldly face the future because uh, the future is what you are bringing about. Um, and as we continue on, I, I do pray for your spirit to be with us as we seek uh, to live out what Paul calls quiet and peaceful lives that we would uh, be prayerful about our leaders, um, but quiet and peaceful in the ways that we love you and we display that love to others. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.